Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, how do you split an antique toaster? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, Carol Hughes and Bruce Fredenberg join us to share their experience with women and men facing the prospect of divorce later in life. They've each spent years with these couples in their own clinical practices and cataloged the experience in Home Will Never Be the Same, a guide for adult children of gray divorce. Carol, Bruce, welcome to the toaster. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're really glad to be here. This is fantastic. I, I think this is really great because we're talking about a demographic we don't normally talk about, right? I mean, Seth, am I right? Oh, well, some of the stuff we've talked about might apply to the demographics. And yeah. a lot of times we talk about parents with small children or with children. But this is, and we're going to hear, hear a lot more from Bruce and Carol on this point, but this is uh, what I would call an underserviced population. Correct. That's what it feels like to me, because when we, when we talk about divorce, the people in my head that we're talking about look like me. And yet the people we talk about when we talk about what I'm scared of look like my parents. Like, I don't want them to get divorced. They're f- and they're fine. But that's the that's the sort of fear as a child uh, of that. So I'm very excited to hear what what you all have to say. Can you give us just a by way of a little background, uh, each of you, what brought you uh, to the point where you came together and decided we're going to write a book about this population? Well, in many ways, uh, I'll let Carol tell the, the main part of the story, but it's it's really Carol's story in that we have both been in practice for oh, about 30 years. And through the course of our practice, we've encountered uh, people whose parents were divorcing late in life and, and our work with divorce that we've been doing a lot of. Um, but Carol wrote a blog article. And it was about adult children of gray divorce and, and the whole phenomena. And it was picked up by a, uh, a writer for the New York Times. And then because it's the New York Times, you know, it's got a great circulation. Uh, a few months later, uh, an agent from uh, one of the uh, literary agents in New York uh, read the article and it resonated with her and contacted Carol and asked if she would be willing to write a book about it. And she asked me if I would uh, join her in this quest. And uh, I said, yes, because Carol usually has good ideas. And I had no idea it was going to be a four-year project. And Carol, did I leave, what did I leave out? <laughs> Thank you pretty much covered it, Bruce. We've been working, and this is one population that we've worked with over the years, uh, because the research has indicated that since 1990, this demographic of the gray divorce people, uh, which is 45 to 50 years and older, uh, has doubled between 1990 and 2015. And Bowling Green State University, who did the research on this and coined the term gray divorce revolution, they their analytics predict that this population of divorce will triple by 2030. Wow. 45 and above is what you're telling me? Mm-hmm. That is quite the statistic. It is. In fact, the actual numbers are really uh, amazing. We didn't realize how large it was till we started to research it. But in, and this is an old status uh, statistic now. It's probably, you know, three, four years old. But about 300,000 couples a year 
enter this this uh, experience. So that's 600,000 people just in the, the, the parents. And that demographic has one to two kids. So somewhere between 900,000 and 1.2 million people enter this demographic every year. And they're, they're not only an underserved population, they're generally an unserved population. And the wounds can go on for, for a lot of years. So a lot of the people who entered it last year and the year before, many of them are still experiencing the same problems. And the, the statistics that Bruce just gave us are for the United States and alone. alone. Yeah. And when we hear that other industrialized countries are experiencing the same phenomenon, uh, you can imagine how those numbers increase. In fact, in Japan, instead of calling it the gray divorce, they call it the retired husband syndrome. Uh, in Canada, <laughs> they call it. So hold on a second. Hold on a second. <laughs> I'm just saying. I didn't make it up. <laughs> I was. I was waiting for Carol, that. We're not letting that one slip by. That's what okay. They call the, it. Re- the retired <laughs> husband. So my parents have been um, uh, married for over 50 years. Good for them. And they they tell the joke that they've been happily married for five, and then they pick right, five out that. of the 50, right? Which was no minor children <laughs> at home during those years, but. Some of my mother's friends and both my parents worked full-time jobs their entire careers, but my mom worked a lot out of the house. She was a trial attorney, a civil rights attorney, but would work from home a lot. Um, And then when my dad retired um, from being a professor at University of South Florida, they would their friends would say, oh my gosh, you could, it's so nice. You could have lunch together. And my (laughs) mom would say, no, no, no. We married for life, not for lunch. (laughs) That's That's very good. (laughs) Okay, so we've got retired husband syndrome in Japan. What do they call it in Canada? Canada calls it the the diamond splitters. Diamond divorces. Thank you, Bruce. Diamond divorces. Diamond divorces. And then the UK calls it silver splitters. So that's catchy. Quite a few little catchy names there, right? Well, at least it's well branded, even if the population <laughs> is ignored. What what is it? What's going on with with why this? I mean, you you uh, corrected us and said this is unserved population. What what is it that makes this population unserved? Well, and Bruce can add a lot to this too. Um, you know, in our culture, and I think most industrialized cultures. 18 years old is kind of the magical number in the majority where they become, quote, adults. And so we start to think in our mythology that these people are adults and they'll just roll with whatever happens in their lives, not like minor children. However, I have yet to meet a a grown-up who's divorcing who hasn't had or isn't experiencing some negative feelings, some more powerful than others. So this truly is mythology. Why would we believe that the adult children have no feelings that need to be addressed and no no feelings of crisis or trauma? However, when people enter the legal system, if, if they're having an adversarial divorce, uh, they're, they'll say, if, if they come up in the conversation at all, the attorneys will tell them, well, they have no standing. Don't worry about it. They're going to be 
you know, they don't have any legal standing. And a lot of people will say, well, the, you know, like, your kids are going to be okay. They're grown. And that's really seductive for a parent to hear their kids are going to be okay. I mean, if you've got kids and, and at this time in their life, the, the divorcing couple, um, especially for the Levy, but for the leave or two, they're overwhelmed with all their own emotion of, of what's ahead of fear or what's going on with me. And so if somebody tells them that's one less thing to worry about, don't worry about the kids, that can be really seductive. And, and plus the mythology in our culture, if you know, grow up, put on your big boy, big girl pants, just load off. You're lucky they didn't do it when you were, when you were a kid. And so they start to feel there's something wrong with them for feeling that way. So they don't tell people about it or, you know, or, or if they do, and then it starts disrupting their own new family if they've got their own nuclear family or gets in the way of, of work, or they just become distanced from the parents. That's a really interesting point that you raised, Bruce, because when I have a case where the children are 18 or older, I will say from a legal perspective they are not involved in this case. It does not mean that they're not impacted by this case. And those are two dramatically different things. And kind of the closer in age to 18, but over, so 18, 19, 20, 21 in college, we do tend to focus on them a bit more. I will confess my sins, as you're about to tell me I've made all these years, if they're 35, I never discuss the adult children at that age. When I'm, when I'm discussing the college kids, I might say it's not relevant per Florida family law. Pete, you know what we're going to say. Check your local jurisdiction. Check your local jurisdiction. Yeah, check the box. <laughs> bingo. But it plays into it because sometimes a settlement agreement might account for paying for an adult child's college or um, – you know, room and board or, or car insurance or who's going to keep them on their medical insurance and stuff like that. Never once crossed my mind if the divorcing parents had adult children that were 35. I think this begs a really interesting question, though, and we don't have to talk about it now, but I want to make sure it's it's I, I lodge my point. What would you do differently as an attorney for an older couple with older children to support those clients now aware that there is some impact by this? How would that change your the legal process for you as, as a divorce attorney? It, I'm really curious about No, that. it wouldn't change the legal process, but it will certainly change now. I mean, I've just here learned something on the toaster. I'm thrilled. Yeah. Is that I'm going to say, how are your relationships with your adult children? And I do ask that question because I call anyone, not just adult children, anybody else that I don't see, but they're around, I call them the ghost people. They're around, they're influencing what's happening. I never see them, but they are, they are impacting my client in that, in how they get through this divorce process. Right. So, um, I see this more of adult children when there's grandchildren and I then ask my client, well, okay, what's going on with that? Like, but now it's almost cause I'm falling in back to like little kids. Right. Yeah, um, sure. And 
but from it's a, easy to understand the impact on little kids of divorce, whether they're right. children, grandchildren, whatever generation. Right. Or, or I'll ask, hey, you know, are, are the kids going to take sides? How's that going to impact you? What does that mean? Or, you know, so, but Bruce, Carol, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, is there a best practice for attorneys uh, in this relationship? I think so. Uh, and I'm not a legal expert, but I certainly work alongside a lot of attorneys in the collaborative divorce process and even litigation that you know people choose. Uh, one of the attorneys that we know, have known for many years, speaks of the adult children. He calls them children of the marriage, which I think is a great term as a mental health professional. Uh, because they are children of the marriage, it really focuses on the relationships and the and and it isn't just that they're adult children. Uh, and he also taught us that they he calls them stakeholders in their parents' divorce, which is a lot of like what you're saying, Seth, is the ghost people. We call them the shadow people or the Greek chorus. Those are pretty negative. That's pretty words, dark, you guys. <laughs> I know. I gotta tell you, I, I feel like... like I'm cruising up toward Mordor with Frodo <laughs> and Sam. <laughs> I know. That's why I like Children of the Marriage because yeah. it's it's neutral. Um, and I like Seth what you said about how are your relationships with your adult children, because we like to educate people. Um, there's a very famous uh, psychiatrist at UCLA, Dan Siegel, who's very well known in our field. Uh, and he's one of the co-founders of the UCLA Mindfulness Research Institute. And he says that human beings are wired for relationships, period. And it's all about relationships, period. And I like that it's succinct. And I tell parents this because what are your relationships, just as you said, Seth, with your adult children of the marriage? And these relationships go on, the research shows, from the cradle to the grave. And it's pretty sobering if they're of the mindset that Bruce was talking about earlier, being seduced into, well, we want our kids to be okay. We think they're okay. They have their own lives now. And they aren't often. And it interferes with work and other issues, as um, Bruce said a minute ago. And Bruce, maybe you're very good at sharing the story from the attorney I'm talking about, how he talks to his uh, uh, clients. Sure, sure. And and I always like to point out to people that life is primarily an emotional experience, not an intellectual one. Now, you know, we obviously value education and we value the intellect because we went to school for a long time. But if I play a song on the radio that reminds you of being 15 years old, I guarantee your first thought will not be quadratic equations or conjugating Spanish verbs. It'll be how you felt and how I felt and who liked me and, and worse, who didn't like me that I wanted to like me. You know, it's it's the emotions come up. So people don't need to be reminded of, you know, don't forget the, the pension plan or don't forget the 401k because they know they need money. But I think for most people going forward, what's really going to impact their, their life and the regret is going to be if they lose a relationship with a parent, with a child, or it gets conflicted. And, and so the story one of our attorneys tells it's a, a client he had that uh, he was real sure that he didn't have to give his wife anything. I forget the, the technical reasons, but you know maybe she would have a little bit of her own social security, which wasn't much. And he was being left and he was really angry and he just was going to make sure she didn't get anything. And he 
can point to the places in the law. And in conversation, the attorney discovered that he one of his pleasures in life is going fishing with his grandson. And, and that's so about to stop. That, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yes. That's what he said. He said, well, you think he'll, she, since she's not going to have any money, do you think she might be living with your children? Yeah. Well, so how do you think it's going to be when you go over there to pick up your grandson and he knows what's happened to grandma and your kids know, and there you are. Do you think that's going to impact this at all? And the light went on for him and suddenly they had a much more uh, amicable uh, discussion about how to look at the family assets and who needs what and how they're going to get it. Well, the interesting point about that is that conversation shifted that client's perspective from positional to interests. Yes. The position is yes. under the law. I, I'm, yeah. I'm entitled to X. She's not entitled. She's only entitled to Y. And that's what I'm going to stick with, which if you go to court, that's what's going to happen. But in a settlement, doesn't matter what the law is. Check your local jurisdiction. The judge has to sign off on it. That being said, if you focused on your interests and what is important to you, those interests actually might align with your soon-to-be former spouse, even though you're no longer going to be living under the same roof. And that makes settlement much more productive or conversations productive in the hopes of reaching an amicable resolution. Very well said, Seth. Hopefully it does, <laughs> yes. However, once in a while, some people are so entrenched in their hurt and pain, if you don't catch them before the next sentence when they ramp up their anger again, it's... Uh, tricky business. I kind of want to step back in time. I think this relates, but I, I want to step back just a little bit and talk about the, the changing value proposition uh, around uh, the value of and expectations around divorce for older people and how it relates to the values and expectations of divorce for their children. That, I assume, to get us to this point, has to have changed over the years. And we hear this sort of anecdotally, oh, you know, divorce is more accepted now than it was in 1950, 1960. But what is what is that looking like and how do those how do those rates parallel for the adults getting a divorce and the adult children of those getting divorced? One of the uh, things that we did for this book is we did try to find as much research as we could that had been already done on this population, the adult children. There's very little research we do include it in the book. Uh, And what that research has come up with thus far is that the adult children over 50% of the adult children in the different research studies uh, from ages 18 to 50 uh, did say that they were very negatively affected by their parents' divorce, older parents, obviously, and their families were too. If they had you know, children, uh, their, their work life was affected, they're worrying about their parents, maybe they have to help their parents financially, or as the story Bruce just told, the parent moves in with one of them, and over 50% uh, were very stressed, and the parents agreed. They surveyed, uh, researched the parents too, Um, and so much so that sometimes they do become estranged from their divorcing parents because it's just too much. They're in a kind of what we call a sandwich generation if they have their own children, so they're feeling pulled in both directions to take care of their own kids if they have children and their adult children. The good news in the research is that between five and 10 years later, if the adult children were estranged and their parents, uh, the majority had reconnected, which underscores Dan Siegel's comment about relationships or what it's all about. 
period, forever. Does that make those kids less likely to divorce themselves? Again, we don't have enough research on that yet. What this research said is that once that we quoted is that it does make adult children question their ability to stay married. What what if I'm going to be the apple that doesn't fall far from the tree? Yeah. Uh, and many of them did you know, start seeing a couples counselor or whatever to separate what they were feeling, the, the negative feelings and fears and all from their parents' divorce from their own marriage. And the younger ones, 18 to 20, 30, however, the ones that are single, reported the same thing, that they started questioning. Not 100% of them, but a significant number. It's a good question, Pete. Well, I think that falls in line, Pete, with what we've discussed previously, where divorce happens in clusters. Exactly. Friends, somebody gets divorced, and it's like, hmm, they're going to start questioning their own, and... And grass is always greener on the other side, as they say. And, oh, look at my buddy. He's got all this free time all of a sudden. Or every other weekend off, he doesn't have the kids. And he's doing X, Y, and Z. And um, But I always try to remind people that you are only seeing what those individuals choose to share. Very rarely do you see on Facebook... I'm just having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And all I want to do is move to Australia, (laughs) a great children's book that I was read to a lot as a child. But um, it's all the fun stuff. I mean, sometimes when people will post sad stuff, but no one ever posts when they do something wrong. Um, So it's it's that outward appearance that there's a lot of other uh, emotions going on underneath that, that you might not be seeing. And again, the you know, there isn't a lot of research on this. Uh, but the, some of the research we found that is that the father-adult-child uh, relationship is most at risk. And and part of the risk for the mother sometimes, especially if they have been, uh, you know, the stay-at-home raiser of the kids, uh, it sometimes can be, over money issues, they can become especially dependent on their adult children. And then that can cause a rift in that relationship, particularly when somebody's already married and they're suddenly their nuclear family resources are going to the other person's parents. And, you know, it's, it's, they might like those parents, but they're not their parents. And they see money going out the door that could be going to the, their kids, their family. And so, all those complications come up that can put real strain on the adult-child-parent uh, relationship if, if, if they don't avoid some real significant mistakes. And then there's a complication sometimes if one of the parents is the caregiver for the other parent, that burden's going to fall on the adult children. And so there, there has to be some sort of way for the caregiver parent who's maybe leaving for their own better life, they feel, but to help their kids with the transition because they're going to know all the medical things. And people don't think about that going forward. But uh, we were asked to write an article about that for a caregiver magazine and started noticing all those things people don't even think to bring up. And I want to underscore what Bruce just started with about the relationship with the father that is what the research indicates, uh, actually, sadly, with minor children, too. Uh, and we certainly have seen that in our clinical practices and in our divorce work that we do. Um, the father is usually not as connected in general uh, with the uh, children, minor and adult. And that's a, a big loss for minor and adult children, just to add that. You know, it's really interesting you said that about caregivers. My um my grandfather, um, my grandmother passed away, and my grandfather remarried to a woman whose husband had passed away. 
And on my dad's side, it's the only grandmother I ever knew. And when they got older, um, and she was doing a lot of the caregiving for my grandfather, so my step-grandmother was, she basically couldn't handle it anymore and said, oh, I want him to go live with one of the adult children or put him in a, a, a different home than they were. And in my mind, being a divorce attorney, right, is, oh, she's wanting a divorce without the divorce. But what you're saying is if they actually get divorced, that caregiving responsibility is going to go to one of the adult children. And that's something that we don't really consider. Um, I mean, in the legal world, we wouldn't even think about that. Um, other than maybe if there's an expense that you need and who's going to pay for it. Um, so it's very interesting, all the different ways that adult children are impacted based upon where their parents who are going through the divorce are at in what stages in their life. Which leads me to what I mentioned, you know, avoiding the worst mistakes. And um, you mentioned the mentioned it earlier, taking sides when a when somebody it assumes the right to tell someone else what kind of relationship they're allowed to have with their other parent, that's a real boundary issue. I mean, you know, the, the divorcing couple needs to understand that their relationship with each other is not the same relationship each kid has with them. And, and their siblings, who are the aunts and uncles of the adult children or cousins, you know, a lot of times people will want to take sides for the person they're related to. And so the parents would do well to talk to their extended family and tell people uh, not only uh, would, you know, I would like you not to do that, but you're really not allowed to do that because it's going to make our lives much harder. And that the kids need to be informed that they have a right to not be drawn into bash the other parent conversations, which can be really uncomfortable. And But most parents aren't going to go out and tell their siblings to do that because they're busy dealing with their own emotions and they're hurt. But after the divorce is over and when the lines have been drawn and people who've been in each other's lives, the extended family for 25, 30, 40 years, and suddenly there's that rift and, and the kids have a lot of pressure to take up sides. One way people cope with that stress is just to withdraw from everybody, you know, pox and all here. I'm, I'm going to hide out. I'm going to drink more, whatever they do to, to, uh, to do it. Or they just don't invite the parents over for Thanksgiving because they're not picking which parents right. coming. And, and family celebrations turn into family traumas. And what Bruce was just talking about, we teach par uh, parents a solution to this is for them to create their own divorce story, we call it. And we help them with that if they need help. Is once you fell in love, once you had these children, what do you want going forward for your children, your grandchildren, whomever that may be, and give them permission to have, as Bruce was just talking about, not take sides. What do you want the community members to do? Because people tend to line up if they think of divorce as war. So we help them create their own divorce story, and then they share that with their adult children, grandchildren, if they're old enough to understand, friends, family members, extended family, community members, church, synagogues, whatever it may be. I, I want to pivot uh, just a little bit and, and talk about the legal process. And uh, because I, I know, uh, I, I know the 
the issues that we have with the evolving technology and evolving systems and things that cause a natural fear, uh, you know, for my parents and their generation. And they, they struggle with things like new phones and all that kind of stuff. And it becomes in our family kind of a, you know, a, a fun way to laugh at my dad pushing buttons too hard. Right. But what I also know is that going into the legal system and engaging the legal process to to embark on separation is terrifying for people of any generation. I, I wonder if you have thoughts, and, and all three of you really, uh, thoughts on how the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that comes with embarking on the legal journey uh, is different for those uh, in this generation. So from my perspective on that, Pete, is... The closer you get to retirement, or if you are in retirement, it feels like you're giving half your stuff away, and you will never have time to rebuild it. So it's more about just sort of the loss of acquisition. Well, it's not the loss of acquisition. That's what happens. But it's the fear of not having enough funds to live that the way that you expect okay. to in retirement. Okay. Yeah. If you are getting divorced at 35 or 40 and you have to give away half of your net worth at that time, whatever it may be, you're going to have to think to yourself, I've got 25 years to rebuild it. Yeah. Right. If you're getting divorced at 60, you don't have 25 years to rebuild it. That's a big cloud over that divorce process. And what happens is and this is just a hypothetical, you have a guy that owned a business and built that business. And now he's like, it's mine. Like that's his identity is the business owner. And now you're like, well, we have to value your business and she's entitled to half of that value. And it's, well, she didn't build it. She didn't do that. Like you forget about yeah. the child rear and you forget it. The kids have been out of the house for 10 years. She never went back to work. And I'm making these Sayings well, up, and you're but, getting a divorce, and all of a sudden, that makes you naturally less sympathetic to any of the other sort of emotional connective tissue yes, that you once had. Right. But I view those types of cases almost as financial planning cases. And let's look at your interest to see what we can do in the law to try to meet those interests. And I am always getting um, financial planners, wealth managers, um, people that are good with budgets to get involved early. Because all I can do in the law is tell you what I can get you. I can't tell you what it's going to do for you 5, right. 10, 15 years down the road. And part of it to what Bruce and Carol speak to is, well, I wanted to leave money for my kids or I, we were paying for private school for the grandkids. What's going to happen with that? Do I have to tell them, no, I need money now? Or the worst one, you tell the grandkids, I can't pay for your kids you tell your kids, I can't pay for the grandkids' private school or for their trip, summer trip we always do, because I have to pay alimony to your mom. Which can lead immediately to the uh, battle lines being drawn. Uh, for it, Let's say the mom is that person that you were just describing, Seth, who maybe didn't work outside the home or did. You know, many, the majority of mothers in the U.S. are working outside the home now and have been for several decades. But you can see how if that mother or father feels like they're getting a raw deal, uh, the natural the natural thing to do is go to the adult children and bag on that other parent. 
which creates a lot of chaos and trauma, as we said a minute ago, in the family. Well, and that's a, that's really the root of the question, Bruce. To the to the point that you know, how do you counsel uh, those going through this divorce through the grief process that comes from the battle lines and the fear of the process and that that lot? Fred Luskin, the uh, he the, runs the Forgiveness Project at Stanford University for the last 25, 30 years, and um, in a talk we heard one time, he. he defined uh, one of the purposes of adrenaline when people get in fear and the hyperadrenalized states. One of the purposes of adrenaline is to force you to look at a problem. And it does it by making you feel horrible. So when people get afraid enough and they generate that hyperadrenalized state, it's virtually impossible to generate feelings of compassion or generosity or, or, or caring or anything it's you're just they're locked into the fight or flight freeze response and so it can be really important to be able to teach them ways to get out of that that mindset and and one way is is to get them to be thinking about other things that moves the uh, the neurons are firing less in the back of the brain and more in the top and the front that can actually generate better ideas and so um, one of the things I find in the structure of, of people who've done that, uh, what was formerly traditional marriage, one person worked outside the home, one person raised the kids. Um, when they did that, they did it because they were they're making sacrifices. One will never get that earning capacity back, and the other ones missed out on the really deep relationship with the kids compared to you know, they can't go back to the sixth grade and see the play. They just weren't there. And so they both made sacrifices with the idea they were sacrificing for the family, for the unit. And now here they are, they've made their sacrifices and they're not getting the fruits of those. One gets the relationship with the kids generally, and the other, their, their lever of control is the money. And so I've often uh, started getting them to buy into the, the concept that the real wealth of your family is your children. And I think most people who are parents feel that. So that elevates the, the, the status of the person who's the lower earner because Usually it's a she, but it can be a he. They have the, the bridge, the tools to help the other parent get the better relationship with the children going forward that they, they say they want and they're resentful of not having. And the one who's got the opportunity to control the, the lever of money can help uh, reduce the, the, the agony of being poor for the other person. And so by getting them to buy into that, wouldn't it be a shame if you both didn't get to reap the fruits of your sacrifice because the other person's got the control? And Bruce, not to throw a fly in the ointment, but then there's a new relationship that comes in. Yes. Yes, there is. And how does that impact it? Yes. And especially if that relationship has a large degree in separation in age at or below your children's ages? Well, in, in the process that we work in, usually, they're usually non-adversarial processes. And um, in, in the attorneys we work with now, in, in many cases, will want a neutral child specialist, even with adult children. 
because uh, a neutral child specialist who becomes the voice of the children, not they don't enter the meetings, but you can interview them, find out, can really find out about the hidden agendas, the relationships, what's going on in the family, because none of the other divorced professionals are ever going to meet the only people that know what it was like to grow up in that family and what's going on and, and, and how that's going to affect. And so with that information, that can then be given to the parents with the permission of the adult children. Uh, they can even the person with the new relationship can start to see the cost that that could likely read mean for them if they they want to play hardball and positional uh, negotiation. And so you know that, at least it's a toehold somewhere. It's it's extraordinarily uh, complex, right? And, and I think that's the thing that dealing with folks in this age bracket, getting a divorce, the ripples felt throughout the, the family institution are, are significant. And I think that's a, that to me feels like the echoes of underservedness, uh, in, in the divorce process. Uh, you've got people coming into you and they say, okay, we need to, we're, we're thinking about dissolving our marriage. Give us uh, the, the 8 a.m. Monday morning pitch. What do they need to be, be uh, aware of? One of the, my favorite questions to ask them is what is the legacy that you want to leave your children minor and adult children from this period of time in their lives? Some people get it right away. Others say, well, what do you mean? So imagine five or 10 years down the road, what do you want your children telling their best friends, their spouse, whatever, whomever? What what do you want them to say about this time in their lives when you're going through a divorce? So I try to elicit from them- The legacy. Their highest aspiration, right, hopefully. you know. And most parents, I tell them, don't want their kids to be harmed. Divorce is upsetting to all children in some way or another. So what do you want to do about it? I'm not telling them not to divorce, but let's be preventative here. Yeah. That's, that's the number one sentence I yeah. usually say. One of the, uh, and I forget who came up with this description, but I, I really like it, that you know we approach a divorce for families as not a battle to be won, but a problem to be solved. We say that. All the time. I appreciate that, Bruce. I, I'm a problem solver. And if we can't resolve the problem, then the judge is going to. And it's yeah. not necessarily going to work exactly. out the way that you want. No one gets everything they want. I am with you 100%. You are preaching to the choir with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in yes. a system yes. that has winners and losers means some of those losers are going to be members of your family if you guys don't tone this down. And, and that can strike a note for people, too, because... It is winners and losers if you just keep going that way. Well, I've had a judge on the bench when we're at a pretrial conference, which is a meeting with the judge, just to make sure procedurally everything's on you know, on track so we can have a clean, crisp, hopefully efficient trial. But it might be 30, 60 days out, and the judge might be sending us back to mediation and say, you guys are arguing about money. And I can tell you the one thing, the only people that are really going to win in these cases are your lawyers. Because they're going to get paid and you're, you're arguing about dividing up this pie that is this big. And by the time you get through trial, when I go to divide it, it's going to be this big because all that other pie was eaten by those lawyer fees. So the judges will look right at us and say, no disrespect, attorneys. You got two very good lawyers here. They're, they're going to be the winners here. Um, and, and I think there's a lot to that statement. 
um, especially if you can narrow the issues. We advise, I advise, I know other great lawyers advise their clients, it is better to pay more or accept less and keep a bigger piece of that pie than giving it to the lawyers. Let's solve the problem lessons, and let's move lessons on. Lessons learned. And and Pete, um, to your earlier question, one of the things, and, and I, I know this is a lot harder to do in litigation, especially if the person on the other side isn't interested in dampening it down. But um, since we work mainly in non-adversarial uh, processes, we have opportunities to, to talk to both of the people. And one of the things we do is get them to create uh, a statement of their highest and best intentions for this divorce. You know, why did you produce this process? What, as Carol said, what do you want for your legacy to be? And, and most people in there, in the statement, if they have kids, have something in there about wanting to spare the kids, the worst aspects, or keep an ongoing relationship with the kids. And, and they, you know, they've declared they don't want to hurt the kids. Then they're, they're hurt, they're angry, and they start doing things to hurt the kids. It's a good callback. Like, how does making that decision line up with your intention to to not hurt the kids and that can be a good callback during the divorce you're not you're not admonishing them you're not shaming or blaming you're just reminding them what they asked you to deliver and so I, you get a sense this isn't going to deliver that so explain that yeah. to me and then can feel calm it feels heads, like can, the attorneys need need poster board and a sharpie and just remember the kids and just hold it up occasionally in court in yes. <laughs> moderate in mediation whatever uh, this this has been fantastic insightful uh, illuminating thank you both so much for doing this I, I pitch the book I assume I people can find it where books are sold it's fantastic um, uh, mm -hmm. any other resources uh, where can we find you and your work that you would like to pitch sure well books available on Amazon of course in Kindle and uh, audio through Audible and also hardback and through the publisher's website in an ebook and hardback um, and the publishers, Roman and Littlefield. Why don't you give the title, Bruce? Well, it's Home Will Never Be the Same Again, a guide for adult children of the gray divorce. Right. I have two websites. My divorce website is divorcepeacemaking.com. And my therapy website is drcarolhughes.com. And my therapy work uh, website is under reconstruction. So my divorce work uh, website is orangecountydivorcecoach.com. And I can also be found at the Find a Professionals under Collaborative Divorce Solutions, Orange County, CDSOC. Outstanding. We'll put links to all those in the show notes uh, and uh, definitely check out the book. Home will never be the same again. A guide for adult children of great divorce. I'm an Audible fan, so uh, I, I check that out. And, um, uh, you know, just because we're here, if you want to listen to the book uh, for free, Audible can throw you one. Uh, and we'd love to enable that. So uh, head over to audibletrial.com slash toaster. And uh, you will be able to sign up, search the Audible catalog for Home Will Never Be the Same Again, and you can hear the fantastic Colleen Marlowe read the book to you. You keep the book for free uh, forever and ever, even if you decide not to stick with the service. But I think you're going to stick with it. 180,000 titles. It's a fantastic service. I've been a member for 20 years. Uh, so uh, absolutely check it out. Stick it out. You're going to love it. Carol, Bruce, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. Thank you. On behalf of Carol, Bruce, and the uh, lovely and talented Seth Nelson, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster. 
a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, how to split a toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.